0: We're back, Empires of the Future, talking about mere Christianity again. Yes, sir,
1: we sure are. Book number two, we're going to finish it up today. Hopefully, I mean, me and you like to talk, Jackson. And so, man, hopefully we can at least get, to get through these two chapters of this one section in C.S. Lewis's book. But, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it again. Yes. Uh, it's an interesting thing. We've talked about it. We, we read this section uh, a while ago. And so I had to kind of refresh myself to be able to carry on the conversation that we started a couple of weeks ago. Sure. And so, but it's good, you know, uh, it's good to get to open a book, read it, and then be forced to open it again and refresh yourself on it. Yeah. Uh, it's easy to forget things. And so, uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk a little bit more today about CS Lewis, um, I think that's all I have to say.
0: <laughs> You're looking at me like you want me to say something else, but that no. that's all I got. Uh, I was going to ask you, so this this first chapter is called The Perfect Penitent, mm. which is, uh, thankfully, there's one place in my life that I think I've heard uh, the word penitent used before, oh, I and I wanted to ask. Oh, It's, it's probably gotta be the in, same. Re- it's got
1: to be Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It is. Only the penitent man shall pass.
0: <laughs> yep. Yep. And is that the only time you've heard it in terms of... Um, um, I mean pop culture or even i don't know of anybody who uses this word in sort of their daily life
1: i've you know as as a pastor as especially like when you go through seminary you're kind of forced to read old books you're encouraged yeah. to if you're a pastor um I think I've probably come across the word penitence or or penitent or something uh but probably the closest thing would be like the idea of Penance at the Catholic Church, which right. is not so, exactly the So you same have related word. words. Like, right, they're like, related words.
0: Like penance or uh, repentance. Right. Um, but that specific word, I uh, I am thankful for Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's curious. I watched it probably two weeks ago uh, with our family for the first time. Uh, the first Indiana Jones that uh, we've watched, there's some— scarier parts than the other ones. Um, And I was struck, uh, solid movie. Uh, Some movies from your childhood come back and you go, hmm, not as good as I remember. Uh, Interesting, engaging, great adventure. Uh, And so fresh in my mind, The Penitent Man will pass and then how Indiana Jones uh, realizes he better kneel before the blades get him. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, that i so I'm, I'm with you. I knew that was going to be the instance that you had heard of right. the word penitent. So what if you were to to define it? So in the movie, it says only the penitent man shall, shall pass. Uh, he goes down to his knees, kind of kneels. Um, what's the idea be, behind that? What does he mean by penitent?
0: It seems to be uh, related to humility. And also, uh, you, so humility, you see yourself as you are, uh, but then also related to, to honor, that if you are in the presence of someone else of higher standing than you, then you know who you are, and mm-hmm. you ought to take uh, your inferior position. Uh, you ought to take the proper position, uh, is what my understanding of penitence. What about you?
1: Yeah, I you know, and maybe it's because of those other related words, but I've always kind of related it to something like... Um, uh yeah humility but also maybe like um an element of repentance as well which like i said i know those are related words um i think it has to do with humble i think it has to do with humility i think that's the idea behind what indiana jones is doing there kneeling uh knowing your place um yeah and i think that's also the idea behind a little bit of what how I gather from C.S. Lewis how he's using the word when he says the perfect penitent, because um, obviously Christ doesn't have any, have any need for repentance. Right. right. Uh, he has no need to repent of anything ever. Um, so that kind of takes off my idea of like repentance. But I think as human beings, it, when we understand our place rightfully uh, and understand the God that we stand before, repentance ought to be our response, uh, because we have plenty to repent of. Right. Uh, so it is an aspect of, of, uh, penitence. Um, but yeah. So what, what is C.S. Lewis kind of, uh, I guess that's the question we have before us today when he says the perfect penitent here in, in chapter four of book number two. Um, it, that's a good question as far as like, why
0: does he use this as his title, the perfect penitent? Right. Uh, so I, I think w- there should be a warning here that we're we're in pretty deep and involved territory uh, today, and and it's it's powerful and important because it's not like astrophysics, a thing you've never needed to think about. It in fact, it's something that is common that we deal with every day. We all, I mean, in theory, would like to know the absolute truth about ourselves, who we really are. Well, um, I think our uh, our happy side <laughs> likes to focus on only the positive absolute truth about ourself, mm-hmm. um, which is the challenge. Um, but C.S. Lewis talks about in this chapter, he says, look, we're going to wade into some facts about, okay, what happens if ultimate reality comes into our reality? What's that going to look like? Well, that is really important in terms of right and wrong if we have limited small ideas of what right and wrong are, what would ultimate right and wrong look like? Mm-hmm. And then the the question that this chapter answers is, how would ultimate right and wrong engage with us and bring us up? And while probably that question, I, I, maybe we haven't thought about, especially in those terms, we are always a- asking questions about well, other people do wrong, and they need to do right they need to do better. <laughs> yeah. people wronged me, and they should do better than that uh, yes, but are you interested in God's plan, which is to redeem people to bring up the whole of humanity and his method for doing that and that's so that's just the context of what we're getting into yeah. here and and that leads you in uh you might feel like this chapter could answer some questions you hadn't thought about yet, but it's only because I think we often ask smaller moral questions. And what God says is, I see that I see that you want certain things to be redeemed. I have a program for redeeming Mm -hmm. everything that will be redeemed. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing here is is that program. Yeah,
1: that's right. And it's a, it's a, it's really, a, as much as it is a heavy chapter, the things we're going to be talking about, it's a really good chapter, because as we've talked about already, there is a moral problem. There mm-hmm. is a problem that we all look around, we see that we are not perfect, that we are broken, that we do wrong, that other people do wrong against us, all of these kinds of things. Um, and then in this chapter, he introduces the atonement, and, and it becomes central to his discussion. Uh, and so I think the, the perfect penitent when, when we recognize, it's my understanding of it, uh, it is a reference to Christ, right. who, is, uh, who is the one who comes and uh, makes atonement for our sins, who makes uh, makes the, the way available for us to come to Christ. Not only makes the way available, but accomplishes it, mm-hmm. right? Um, brings us to the Lord, brings us to God. The great dilemma of humankind is that we are uh, separated from God. You know, and one of the great questions to to ask, and question that's answered in the Gospels, how can we human beings be made right with God? Right. And the answer is found in the atonement, and so that's what he he brings up here in this chapter. <clears throat> Excuse me, and he does so in a and I think a pretty interesting way. The book is mere Christianity. Uh, his desire is not to get into the nitty gritty of all the ins and outs of, yeah. of doctrine. For one thing, even with that as his approach. He says, we still have to talk about the atonement. Yeah. You know, the atonement is not the nitty gritty, but rather, if you reject the atonement, you are rejecting the gospel. You like necessary, even for mere Christianity is belief in the atonement. Right. What are you going to
0: pay for your own sins? (laughs)
1: Exactly. Exactly. But on the flip side of that, he doesn't take a, or at least doesn't, you know, lobby for in this book, a specific, essential understanding of the atonement. He kind of outlines a, a formula for the atonement. Um, here, I'll read his formula. I think it was worthwhile. Uh, where he says, uh, he says, we're told that Christ was killed for us; that his death was wa- that his death has washed out our sins, and that by dying, he disabled death itself. That is the formula. That is Christianity, and that is what has to be believed. And then he goes on to talk about, but within that, as far as how it is accomplished. There are different theories as to how sure. it is accomplished. All the ins and outs of how atonement happens, and he's kind of like, you know, all those aside. You know, we can talk about those left and right. But in order to be a Christian, you have to believe that the atonement is. Uh, I kind of w- would say it like this: According to C.S. Lewis, atonement is essential for salvation. Understanding it is not, which I think is a is a good thing, uh, because if anyone in here thinks they understand the atonement yeah like I just completely get how it was accomplished Uh, no more mystery there right well you're fooling yourself Um, there is always going to be mystery tied up in the atonement that doesn't mean we don't try to study it and understand it and learn how God did what he did or or certainly why he did what he did but it does mean that we never exclude someone or, or claim that they are not a Christian because they don't have a full enough understanding of the atonement Um, I think that that's something we can do. I think I've known plenty of people who are are very theologically inept, um, who are, excuse me, very, um, I don't know, in love with theology, know a lot about theology, and that's all good. Uh, But I think there is a pride that can well up in us when we study theology for theology's sake, for Mm -hmm. knowledge's sake, that can result in us concluding far too quickly when someone doesn't. Agree with me as far as how some of this stuff works, then they're you know they're anathema. They're out. Uh, If you don't agree with my understanding of exactly how something happened, uh, then then you're out. And C.S. Lewis, I think, helpfully here says, "Hey, look, we don't all have to agree on exactly how the atonement is accomplished. We just need to agree on that it was accomplished by Christ." Right, right,
0: right. And so you've already pushed uh, on. One of the things that can be immediately confusing, frankly, it was confusing to me when I first heard it, because in my head, this sort of line of thought happened. Uh, he says, at first, the idea that Jesus, an innocent man, took the punishment for all of us who are guilty, seems very strange. If God was willing to let us off from our punishment, why punish the only innocent man? Hmm. So, and and that is, it, it. at first you go, well, A, why can't God, if he's... If he's interested in dropping the charges or letting uh, us go, why can't he just do that? And then uh, also, well, why, if you have to punish someone, you pick this innocent party? Yeah. Uh, and, and it does. It, it, it strikes you as odd. And this seems exactly why what you just said is important, that y- you need to accept that you couldn't have solved this yourself. And that someone else, Jesus, has solved this for you. You'll have questions. How far you can get in those questions depends upon, if, well, frankly, uh, your reading, your intelligence, your uh, how good you are with abstract concepts, and a lot of different things. But what we are told is, hey, turn from your sins and trust Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, we will not completely understand this. So all of us are at some level of understanding. And if you're familiar with church history at all, uh, it's never wise to go, well, we know everything there is to know about this doctrine now. We've come to the purest and most perfect conclusion about how it all works. Church history does not unfold that way. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, for instance, uh, in, in regard to this, uh, the what's called the devil's ransom view of the atonement, that, that the devil held people in some sort of captivity and that Jesus broke those chains, uh, that was the common view of the church through 1,000 up until around 1,100, when what is now in our circles the most common view, penal substitutionary atonement, and some of Canterbury right right around the 1100s he began to carry out that view, and that began to gain traction even up till today. And you and I talked about uh, last week afterwards that one strange thing is that so I think it's strange. Sometimes people seem to think that those views have to exclude each other, but to me, those views uh, c- can coexist. One mm. may be higher than the other, one acting on another plane. Um, but all that to say, one, there's a lot of ideas about the atonement, and two, you run into some complexity when you start trying to discuss them. And so what he says, I, I agree with you, and I think it's important to say that, that, look, Jesus paid for your sins and you need to trust him. Mm-hmm. That's the basic understanding of the atonement that we need mm-hmm. to subscribe to. And then, yeah, begin to learn beyond that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the point he makes, it kind of in that quote you were, you were just quoting, uh, he says, yeah, it seems weird to us when we when we talk about um, there, the need for punishment. And there is a need for punishment, right? We're guilty. Um, and, it, and it seems strange to us when we talk about it in terms of, well, he punished the one innocent person and that skews our understanding, right? It's, it, it becomes difficult at times to understand how that could be, which is why he points out that there are ways in which we can talk about the atonement that help make it more clear, because he says, uh, however, if we talk in terms of a debt that one could not pay, so another pays it, then it makes more sense. Well, we just introduced two different ways of thinking about talking about the atonement, both true, both right, but one that helps us understand an aspect of it a little bit better mm-hmm. and that being the the way of a debtor you know so when you hear the story the the um parable that jesus tells of the servant who owed a debt to his master and it was a debt that was just so enormous he could have never paid it off uh, never ever ever and uh the, the master ultimately forgave him his debt he he got down he begged for for forgiveness Begged for more time, you know, just give me time. I will pay this back, which he never could have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the king forgave him his debt. He said, "Go, don't worry about it. You're you're forgiven your debt." Right. And this servant goes to a fellow servant, uh, just right after that, in this in the parable that Jesus tells, and. Takes him by the neck and says, "You owe me a day's wage." Mm-hmm. And the guy begs for his life, says, "Please, I will give you the money. Uh, just give me time. I will. I'll give it to you. Please, just give me some some grace. Give me some mercy." And he shows him no mercy, and he has yeah. him thrown into to, into debtor's prison. And when the king hears about it, he responds by saying to this servant, you ungrateful so-and-so. Mm-hmm. He says, I forgave you that enormous debt that you could have never paid, and you couldn't have forgiven this small debt that this this brother owed you. And so he ultimately cast him into, uh, into debtor's prison. But the point being, and kind of the significance of that story, is that the debt that this first servant owed was a debt that he could never, ever, ever pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was forgiven him, and the king had authority to forgive that debt. Uh, and so thinking about our sin in those terms, we owe a debt because of our sin that we could never, ever, ever pay. Right. And uh, and God, who is merciful and just and able, forgave us that debt. But he forgave us that debt not by just ignoring it. Right. But this is where the atonement really comes into view. He forgave us that debt because another person paid it. because right. Christ, Christ, who had the kind of bank account to do it, uh, paid our debt right. because if he was because he was perfectly righteous, uh, and sinless and spotless, he was able to take the punishment that we deserved. And so, you know, talking about it, it's, you know, we, I just crossed over those two analogies that both he took our punishment, but also paid our debt. Um, both are helpful ways in thinking about the atonement and we need both ways yeah to understand it correctly and to explain it in, in every situation.
0: Yeah, and to be just really specific, because this is such an important detail of what exactly is the debt that that we have incurred. Um, We will admit, most of us, to being a sinner in terms of specifics. You know, I know I've lied. Um, I I know that I have been haughty or treated people badly or I've, I've betrayed people, this or that. Um, And those are problems, but those are symptoms of a greater problem because he he points to the greater problem. He says the death that man has incurred, he lived for himself. Mm -hmm. He tried to set set himself up as God and behave as though he belonged to himself. I I think about this as left in your sins, you behave as if you're the center of the universe, Mm -hmm. as if everything that happens has nothing to do with anything else but you. The only thing that matters is effects on you, whether or not it's the way you want it or not. And we are small little creatures and we are weak. But again, that's humility to realize that we are. And so God knows. I mean, Jesus goes to great lengths to say, don't fear that you won't be fed. You won't be clothed. God knows your needs. Mm -hmm. He's not saying to you, forget that you're finite and small. He's in fact saying to you, I know you're finite and small. That doesn't mean you get to act like everything revolves around you. Right. you. You've got to wake up to the actual reality of this universe. And if you will wake up, I, I'm I'm waking you up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, w- I would like to, you know, you brought it up, kind of, sort of. Uh, one of the accusations that's levied against C.S. Lewis from, from C.S. Lewis haters, I guess you could say. <laughs> I don't know. Um, is that he believed in a heretical view of the atonement that he believed in the devil's ransom view and i think they get this understanding if i'm correct from this chapter where he kind of says i in my opinion in this chapter he kind of says i find some views to be you know reasonable and and you know i've held to one over the other at times but ultimately i think there are various views on the atonement that are acceptable and right and then that in addition to when he writes uh the chronicles of narnia Lion, right. which in the wardrobe uh, a lot have peop- a lot of people have said that what you see in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the Devil's ransom, where uh, the uh, Queen, who has taken Edmund, and Edmund is guilty of uh, treason, right, which is a a capital punishment yep. to be punished by death, and that a blood debt is owed her. I think is something like the yeah. language in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and um, Aslan steps up to. Pay that debt. Yeah. Essentially in the in the book and in, in the movie, if you've seen the movie, essentially to the queen, he pays the blood debt that's owed her. Like she she is owed this blood debt, right? Yeah. Um and so people will take that along with some of the things that he says here in Mere Christianity and said and say C. S. Lewis believed in a because I think I think it has been condemned by certain church um church councils or certain church traditions as heresy. Am I correct in that? Devil's reigns Not that I
0: know of, but Really?
1: Okay. Maybe I'm wrong then. Um, but many people reject the idea of the devil's ransom.
0: I was, and I, I we could certainly, I'm, I'm with you that certain plenty of people or, or some of the people I've run into would find it less useful or not really see a need or place mm-hmm. for it.
1: Yeah, and this is, I guess, a part of, part of the question. I don't think we can just breeze over it and not talk about maybe some of the controversy, especially since you brought up the devil's ransom. Um, we talked about it a little bit last week, like you said. Um, what do you? Th- what would you? How would you respond to someone? I'm going to get this question right, I swear. How would you respond to someone who says, uh, I don't really like C.S. Lewis because he believes in the devil's ransom based on C.S. Lu- or mere Christianity and Lion in the witch and the wardrobe? What would your response to that person be?
0: Uh, my response would be, uh, can you explain to me the conflict between Jesus and the demons, uh, w- why Jesus deals with demons as he does, or what was happening in relation to those sorts of powers in the gospels, in the new Testament in general, it's a, it's, it's, it's not a theme that is only mentioned once or twice. Um, and and it's frankly one that I think a lot of people miss. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and I I think it is important uh, Mm -hmm. from a standpoint of, uh, do I believe there's still demonic activity today? Yes, I do. Do I know exactly what that is? No, but we are told to, uh, Demolish arguments that there are there are ideas that are harmful ideas that that I, the world of ideas is not this wonderful happy place where you just you just believe whatever you want it'll all work out great. No, I mean we, in our sins we like certain ideas because they allow us to carry on in our sins and uh, not to run too far with this. But I think that the demonic world still has effects in that area. I say that to say that um, I think that what you have in the devil's ransom view of the atonement is um, a layer, an explanation mm-hmm. of Satan wanted something when he tempted Jesus. What did he want? He didn't get his way. Okay, what was his way? These are they, We see these events take place in the Gospels it is pretty agreed upon that Jesus defeated the devil. How? Uh, and then, then uh, you run into a very hard question, but one that I don't think we need much more of an answer. And okay, then what is the ultimate victory that's going to happen in Revelation? Then how's that different than the victory that Jesus has in the cross? All of these questions are answered in what I would call the fusion of the lower uh, layer, the devil's ransom view, and then the higher layer, which is the penal substitutionary view, that, that God required payment for sin because he can't, he, he will not dismiss sin. He, mm-hmm. he, God is holy. Sin has to have payment. No human could pay it unless God becomes a human. Mm -hmm. So that is the penal substitutionary layer, and lower is the devil's ransom layer. Yeah,
1: I think that's a good explanation. I I think it would be wrong to assume that C.S. Lewis exclusively believed that the the singular explanation of the atonement is that the devil was owed some debt, and God paid the devil in exchange for us— the end. I don't think that would be a fair representation of of what C.S. Lewis believed. Yeah, and
0: just to flesh out what is the devil's ransom view in a very basic form, it would be similar to what you see in the Chronicles of Narnia. You joined the devil's side in an ongoing war, and you don't then have the power to just go, oh, never mind. I I didn't mean to join your side. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, And so then you have joined the opposing army mm-hmm. and that when Jesus redeems you, he redeems you out of that.
1: Right. So, right. Not only do you not have the, um, the power to say, Oh, I changed my mind. You don't even have the desire, right? We can talk more about that, but, um, yeah. So, yeah, I think it would be an unfair, I would say it's a very similar thing. I would think it'd be unfair to just, just to just say, C.S. Lewis, exclusively believed in the devil's ransom theory of the atonement, that the devil somehow was owed something by God in exchange for us. Now, I don't I don't think that's a fair representation of, of what he believed. Uh, but I do think it is the case that the Bible is pretty clear that before Christ, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, uh, well, who did we belong to? We belonged to the prince of the power of the air. Yeah. Like we, we were a part of his dominion. Uh, and so maybe you don't like the word ransomed, but ultimately we have been redeemed out of... Uh, which is a pretty close word to the word ransom. It's a word that first Peter uh, that Peter and first Peter uses, right. that we've been ransomed. He's well here, I'll, I'll read it, I've got to pull up here. He says, uh, and if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear uh, through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. So the word ransom is actually uh, pretty closely tied to the word redeemed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the point being that, yeah, we were essentially, we belonged to the devil in the sense that we, have, we had uh, allegiance to him and uh, we were a part of his uh, kingdom, if you will. And it wasn't until Christ intervened that we were redeemed or ransomed or or or
0: bought yeah, think, into. Think about, I mean, handcuffs being broken. Yeah, I mean, think yeah. about a lot of analogies, doors of a jail yeah. opening up. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I think, I think it's a
1: helpful way. In addition to like what you're saying, uh, recognizing that the wrath of God is due all who belong to the devil, all who are dead in their sin, all who right now are not sided with Christ. Uh, the wrath of God is upon them and the wrath of God needs to be satisfied if they are going to be, redeemed if they are going to be ransomed. And so, um, while I, I would not, and I don't think C.S. Lewis would either propose that, that the devil's ransom theory of the atonement is the exclusive way of understanding it. I think, uh, you cannot somehow cast aside or cast out all who would say that in one sense, uh, it is, it is at all useful in helping us, you know, we can't just cast it out. Right.
0: I mean, and, uh, one, uh, I'll say two more things about it. One, the Bible tells us that our enemies are not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, that, they, that they're actually our enemies in this present age. Well, then what do you do? Well, you defend, and then again, Paul says you demolish arguments. You see lies, and you give no space to those lies. You, you, you attack those lies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need to be destroyed they they do and 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 so our enemies are not flesh and blood. Uh and then the second thing is a is a GK Chesterton quote he says look one of the he, he actually puts a point on it. he says the second greatest joy in life is knowing who to fight. Yeah. The first greatest joy in life is is uh, in life is knowing who to love. I would I, I believe is where he's pointing to there, but you orientation is knowing who's with you. And who's against you? Yeah. And uh, I I saw that quote from G. G. Chester, and I thought, you know what? It's true. We, we know that there is something amiss around here. And finding out who's responsible for it um, is very helpful. Yeah. That's right. That's right. For sure. So... so um, this, there's been about a 10-minute aside here that was uh, beyond the scope of mere Christianity, but mm. this is what he wants, really. Uh, this can point us back just to the beginning of the book. He says, look, I, I want you to understand the hall, but the hall is a place to go and, and begin to learn more. And so we've taken a few minutes really thinking more about these subjects, which is good. Um, what, what we are trying to get at here is that if we know who we are, that in our sins we set, us, set ourselves up as the center of the universe. We see what we really are. We're a rebel against the one who is the center of the universe. And we need to lay down our arms and say, I'm done. I, I got to stop that. Mm-hmm. And that's, we have a word for that. That's what Christians call repentance. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you realize the hole you've been digging, you stop digging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's called repentance.
1: Yeah. And it's a difficult thing. He talks about the difficulty of repentance in the, uh, in the book. And I, can't, I think kind of speaks to the necessity of the Holy spirit in repentance. Mm-hmm. This idea that, that we on our own just come to the conclusion, you know what? I'm done serving the devil and lay down my arms and I'm going to serve Christ. That does not happen on our own. Mm-hmm. That is not something that the human condition is ever that human nature, uh, before our redemption, is ever prone to. Uh, that can only become a reality once the Holy Spirit has intervened and, and begun to do a work of, honestly, creating a new creation in us, yeah. bringing us from death to life to where we, our eyes are opened and and we realize the reality of of our condition. Only then can repentance ever truly become a thing. And even in that, It is a difficult thing. Right. uh, Yeah. I love the way
0: he says, he says, repentance is no fun at all. It means killing all the self-will and self-conceit that we've been living for all these years. Yep. Yep. And that is exactly the truth. It is no fun at all. Right. Um, You, unfortunately, thinking of yourself as the center of the universe is not a simple idea. It is actually an idea that leads to a bunch of other ideas like, well, then I can measure everything everybody else does by whether or not I like it. And then I can make sure they know whether or not I like it. I can make sure they remember that I'm the kind of person who doesn't go along with these sorts of things. It's like, right, that whole, that whole line that you're on there, you got to stop that. Yeah. <laughs> no more of that. Right. No more of measuring everything by, by how it makes you feel, how it makes you look. Uh, that, that you, again, you go back. He understands you have needs, but you, you cannot live by just assessing and evaluating everything that happens to everybody that you know and everything you see every day by whether or not it elevates you.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep. And then he speaks to, to how it is made possible, how it is possible that, uh, that we could uh, be repentant and how we could be drawn out of this state that we are in. How is it at all possible? And this brings us back to, uh, to Christ, the right place, place to be brought back to. And, And in fact, the hypostatic union, now that's a, kind of a big word um but essentially the hypostatic union is the union in found in Christ Jesus that he is both truly god and truly man or some might say fully god and fully man that he is god and man the god man god in flesh uh, Jesus Christ or any other way that you, you that you can think of to say it uh this union of god and man found in Christ Jesus provides for us the means to be brought out of this estate that we are in because we are unable to pull ourselves out of it. Mm-hmm. We are unable. He uses the analogy of a man who's, who's drowning in a river. And uh, all of a sudden, a, a guy appears on the the edge of the river with one foot in the river and then one foot on the shore. And he says, yeah. hey, reach out and take my hand yeah. and I can I can save you. I can pull you out of the river. And there are, there are, C.S. Lewis says, there are many who will complain, you know, that say, well, this seems unfair. Uh, and, and imagine in that state, there's a man in a river, he's drowning, and a guy who's standing half on the shore and one foot in the water reaches out and says, hey, take hold of my hand and I can I can pull you out. Let me grab you out of the water. Yeah. Uh, for the man to protest in the water, saying, well, that's not fair. You've got one foot on the shore. Right. Uh, that's not fair. Well. Yeah, but what are, what is your, what are you getting at here? You know, uh, I am offering you a way of salvation. And if I don't have one foot on the shore, I can't save you. Right. It is necessary. It was necessary that Christ be both fully God and fully man so that he might be able to have, as it were, that one foot on the shore, but also the foot in the water in order to reach in and draw us out. Right. Uh, and, and this is what makes honest, you know, we, we talk about the atonement and how it is accomplished, but, um, this is a, a pretty helpful picture of, of what was necessary for the atonement that Christ had to be both fully God and fully man. And that because of that, he is able to draw us out. And only because of that, mm-hmm. uh, if he were stuck on the shore, uh, then he would not be able to come into the water and draw us out. But if he right. were just in the water with us with no foot on the shore, well, then he would be in the same state as we are. Yeah. Uh, but that's the unique thing about Christ uh, and the incarnation. And what makes it so miraculous and amazing is that it provides for us a way of redemption right. that wouldn't be possible any other way.
0: Right. Right. And it's uh, the ideas come more down to ground level so you can see how this fits together. Here's, I have one more quote from this chapter. Um, he says, quote, "When you teach a child writing, you hold its hand while it forms the letters. That is, it forms the letters because you are forming them. We love and reason because God loves and reasons and holds our hand while we do it. Mm-hmm. Now if we had not fallen, that would be all plain sailing. But unfortunately, we now need God's help in order to do something which God, in His own nature, never does at all. to surrender, to suffer, to submit, to die. Nothing in God's nature corresponds to this process at all, so that the one road for which we now need God's leadership most of all is a road God in his own nature has never walked. God can share only what he has, this thing, in his own nature he has not. Hmm. But supposing God became a man, suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated, and mixed with God's nature in one person, then that person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was man and he could do it perfectly because he was God. End quote. Yep. That's exactly right. And that's the only way it could happen. Yeah. Right. That's a good, that's a good chapter. (laughs) Good chapter. That's a good chapter. chapter. And so, uh, we're going to put together the conclusions of these last four chapters for what chapter five is called, which is the practical conclusion. Mm -hmm. Okay. What do we do about these facts? And, um, there's been a lot of facts, a lot of things thrown around. But this last fact is this. Okay, we're a rebel. We've stood against God, and there's forgiveness. What do we do? He starts this, out this chapter, and he says this. There are three things which spread the life of Christ to us, baptism, belief, and communion. We won't talk about one as any more important than the other. We'll just talk about the fact that they're all important says, the reason that these are the conductors of the faith is unknown, just as if someone had not told me I wouldn't relate a certain exciting experience to the fact that new people are coming into the world right off. <laughs> Baptism, belief, and communion. Important things. hmm So, the practical conclusion then, what should we— uh, which we do about baptism and belief and communion. Well, we should certainly exercise that. <laughs> right. And that's, and as and it's, it's complicated as a lot of these things have been, that's an important point. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I love what he, what he says in the book. He makes the point that um, what, what we are looking at now is new life in Christ Jesus. And he says that this new life and the way in which we enter into new life, the way in which new life comes, is no less odd than the manner in which the old life comes, which I think is really funny. And he talks about the, you know, kind of being told for the first time, you know, how it is that new life is created in the world. Right. And thinking, mm, that can't be right. Right. There's no way that's how it happens. Right. Uh, that's, that's weird. <laughs> and the answer is, yeah, it is kind of weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean,
0: it, it, here's just one simple uh, way to illustrate that. As a kid, you know, you might ask, What about like farm animals? How does this happen for them? Oh, pretty much the same way. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah, that's
1: exactly right. But then, you know, the the answer to the the question of how it is that, how do we become Christians? How is it that we move from death to life? How is it that the second birth happens? All these kinds of things. um, The answer is odd. And people Mm -hmm. can say all day long, well, that's just so strange that that the holy spirit produces uh faith within us that he brings us to life and and then we begin believing and based on our our faith that uh that we have that's miraculously produced in us by the holy spirit we are now counted as righteous and and our new life has begun that we are no longer an, the old thing but behold the new has come mm-hmm. all these things it's like yeah that sounds kind of weird and that honestly, is very well the, the response that maybe is warranted because it does sound kind of strange, mm-hmm. but it doesn't sound any more strange than the way your life in this earth came to be. Uh, and I think that's a, that's kind of a, made me chuckle, kind of a funny point that he made, but it's yeah. a true point that um, it's a miraculous thing. It is a miracle that, that the Lord chooses to create new life in us and to bring mm-hmm. us to life. Uh, not just in a physical sense, but for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, for those of those of us who are Christians, that has happened in a even newer and more miraculous way than our birth when we were first entered into this world. Uh, and it's a really cool thing, and I don't know. I, I think, if anything, it ought to cause us to pause and step back and, and just kind of be amazed at how God, does this in us right and brings us to life absolutely
0: and to to really remember and not let go of this point there there are going to be disagreements about baptism Mm There are going to be disagreements about communion living on the other side of the reformation as we do we're familiar with a lot of these disagreements i appreciate the sort of um crossroads that he stops at here and he says, but never forget baptism. Should you do it? Yes. <laughs> that, that's, that's the first response that is, that is an act of obedience to Christ. He says be washed. Baptism. Belief. Find out who he is. He says he's the Messiah who is to come and who will come again. He says you need to believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And that you ought to share this. It's not an, an individualized, just like you and Jesus sort of thing, that you share this with a group of people, that, that this communion, this Lord's Supper, that w- do not take it lightly if you have a problem with these people, because if you won't get it right with them, your heart's not right with God. hmm and, and that is, the, these immediate points are so important. Um, and, and, and having been where we've been, look, these things can be forgotten and it is to our detriment. It's, it's, it's dangerous if we forget these within the church. I mean, uh, frankly, I've seen it's a tendency in us and it lives in our institutions. It lives in our seminaries. It lives between us in our churches that we can forget right action in our quest for right thinking and right mm-hmm. doctrine mm-hmm. that, that Jesus is often calling people's attention. He says, do the things of God. Yeah, Do the works of God. Your right thinking should lead you to those works. But if your right thinking isn't, don't go find you a lake house somewhere and spend 20 years examining your right thinking outside of the context of a local church, outside of the context of iron sharpening iron, people who will hold you accountable and say to you, yeah, yeah, yeah work out all of your ideas about this but in the meantime look at these widows and orphans over here who need help. Yeah. You know what you got? You got some arms that could help them like mm-hmm. today. So why don't why don't we do that? And hey, who knows? That might just help you sort out what you're thinking about. Yeah. But we we have a lot of ideas floating around and it's dangerous to get so caught up in trying to have the right ideas that you don't have the right practices that you that you forget the right actions. Yeah.
1: There's also a whole lot of pride wrapped up in that too, that we yep. think uh, that we on our own are going to be far better off to figure out these things mm-hmm. uh, rather than in the context of the local church, mm-hmm. because you are right, that is that does happen a lot, and I mean I, you know, know so many people who who live who live their lives disconnected from the local church, claiming Christ, and yet so often thinking, well, I I've I'm trying to figure things out about. All of this stuff, or, or in some cases, I have it figured out, and unfortunately, that comes in direct conflict with what the Bible says and what the church is practicing. Um, the Things like the Lord's Supper and baptism, mm-hmm. we can speculate all day long, and we can study, and we can see what the Word of God says, but ultimately, there is going to be mystery wrapped up in those things. Yep. We don't understand how they affect us entirely. Uh, but we know that they do, and we know that the Bible commands that we practice these things and that we do so with our brothers and sisters in Christ in community with one another. And so to claim, well, I'm going to go over here, separate not only from those people, but also those things that that the Lord has commanded that we do, and I'm going to go over here, I'm going to figure stuff out. Um, You are setting yourself up for failure. You're putting too much confidence in yourself. Uh, We need other people. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need... Um, Our pastors and our deacons, and as much as we need those things, we also need the Lord's Supper. We also need community. We also need baptism. Things like baptism and the Lord's Supper are not given solely for an individual. There is an individual in the water being baptized along Mm. with whoever's doing the baptism, but that baptism serves to edify and build up the whole church. I think we, you know, we the more we can push away from this idea of individualism in these. And these acts and these ordinances these are ordinances of the church right. not ordinances of the individual Christian right uh, and we need to, to not lightly or quickly push away from those things um, or push them into the realm of individualism but rather keep them where they belong and that is in the and keep practicing them in the way they belong and that's in the context of, of community in the local church
0: right Jesus sits down at the table with his people amen not just one. And 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 look, yes, your prayers are heard when you're out going, but he says, I'm the head of the table. I want you all together, and not just together, acting like you can sit by each other. Together, as a testament to this world, this broken world where you see it every day, and you naturally hate it, and you should hate it. Relationships are broken, betrayal, with no hope of reconciliation. And Jesus yeah. says, at my table, there's reconciliation. Amen. And that's... um. Go after that. Don't don't be satisfied with something less. And that's what's so sad. That's what I see. I see satisfaction with something less. Yeah. Uh, when he's saying to you, aren't you ever lonely? Aren't you, don't you ever want to bounce your ideas off somebody? Talk to somebody about something? I'm giving you that. Yep. That's right. Why would you refuse it? Yep. If you're afraid, admit it. It is. Look, being around people, it's complicated. That's what he's calling you to, though. In particular, he says, M- at my table, my people are gathered and and, and in particular, that one um, we I feel just we're we're very inadequate in our, our understanding of what he's doing uh, on on gathering his people and saying, "I'm the head of this table." Mm-hmm. Well, I got ideas about how I hey, you're not the head of this table mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. i i i I not only have ideas. I have redeemed a people i've there's been a plan for all of history to redeem a people and those people are day by day being called And if you're one of those people let's go join the others that's right and 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 we'll see how this kingdom goes forward as those who are called are reconciled brought to life that's it's wonderful and it's exciting more exciting together Mm -hmm. more exciting together than it is all separated yep better together for sure so uh i I would do want to ask you a question
1: yeah so there's a lot of good things uh, he did make one or two statements in this chapter that I was like, oh, I don't
0: know if I agree with that. Okay.
1: Do you want to hear what those things are? Yeah, sure. I would like to hear your thoughts. So he, he has a quote on page 64 in my copy uh, where he says, he says, um, um, so he's, he's talking about these things. He's talking about the natural life, you know, being derived from, from certain things. And he said, you have to feed it. He's talking about the natural life. You have to feed it, look after it, but always remember, you're not making it, you're only keeping it up. Uh, you're only keeping up a life you got from someone else. So then he goes on to say in the same way a Christian life or a Christian can lose the Christ life which has been put into him and he has to make efforts to keep it. but even the best Christian that ever lived is not acting on his own steam, but he is only nourishing or protecting a life he could never have acquired by his own efforts. as I'm reading that a second time, I think I dislike it less. Uh, but what are your thoughts on that? So he says, I think it's the statement where he says, in the same way, a Christian can lose the Christ life, which has been put into him, and he has to make efforts to keep it. There is a but that comes after that, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I
0: it puts him—I mean, we can freely say, I think, I'm pretty sure we have. You know, C.S. Lewis is more in the Armenian camp, but even in this regard— There's a reading of Hebrews that you could just put right beside that. It's impossible for anybody who's tasted the heavenly gift if he should fall away to come back. And these warning passages that you see throughout Hebrews would be, I think, where he's more living there. And I, I, I don't know all the details of what exactly, you know, he is sort of swimming in beyond when I hear that. It makes me think of, practically, we are told, say yes to the Christ life that is in you. Mm-hmm. You cultivate. And don't think, if you think what it means that Christ is going to help you to persevere is that you ought to chill. You've read it wrong. Right, right. <laughs> you, you, have not, you have not spent anywhere near enough time with the New Testament and reading, because this is not exclusive to Hebrews. Yeah. Uh, the Apostle Paul is constantly saying, if you endure yeah. trial, you will be saved. Salvation, a future. The the world will end. Either this whole world will end or your world will end. Mm -hmm. Salvation being a future event where you are saved despite the destruction that's coming. He says, if you endure, there's going to be hardship, but if you endure, you'll be saved. And so that, that's how I put that one in context. Right. Yeah. That's the context. I put it in. He, as he does here, it's summary.
1: Right. I agree with that. And I think, I think too often, um, We equate, you know, we think about the passages in Scripture and in Hebrews and in other places where we are told that we find our rest in Christ Jesus. Those are true statements. But rest does not equal uh, sloth, right? Right. Rest uh, does not come exclusively from sitting and doing nothing. And too often that's what we think of when we think, uh, you know, we need to get some rest. Uh, We think exclusively that means I need to lay down and sleep. I need to sit in my recliner right. and watch television or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, but rest in Christ is found in Him, and we truly do find our rest in Him. Right. Rest from our labors, rest right. from our uh, our working towards salvation because we could never work hard enough anyway. We do find rest in that sense. Right. But we are not called in the Christian life to apathy. We are not called right. in the Christian life to laziness. We are called... Uh, and. You know, let's think about all the different ways in which we are called to uh, be uh, soldiers for Christ. We are called to run the race. We are called to um, uh, to do all of these things to to work heartily as for the Lord. The Christian life is not an easy life; it's not a lazy life, uh, but is one that that requires great effort.
0: And right. I, I think because you know, your debt has been paid, move toward godly right. action. Right. And don't, so, yeah, don't because your debt has been paid. Oh, my debt's been paid. If you hear, go read some books and hang out and wait, you know, no, because your debt's been paid, you have complete rest in him. Mm-hmm. But doesn't your heart well up to go? Well, i got to thank somebody for this. He says, yeah, I, you should love brothers and sisters. You should love your neighbor. You are now free to do that. Your debt's been paid. You're free so that you can go and live and love and care. But if you now think you're free just to gratify the sinful nature, which is what Paul is constantly having to say, no, 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 you've read it wrong. Mm -hmm.
1: Right. So while I would disagree with the statement, um, a Christian can lose the Christ life, which has been put into him, I do agree with what he says in the sentence right after. He says, even the best Christian that ever lived is not acting on his own steam, but he is only nourishing or protecting a life that he could have never acquired on his own efforts. In other words... Uh, all the the effort that we are called to, we are not putting in on our own uh, accord and by yeah, our own yeah, steam, right. but as we are empowered along by the Holy Spirit. Right. And so I would say that empowering by the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit is called in Scripture, uh, he, he serves as our seal, as our guarantee yeah. uh, of what is true of us, of the new life that is ours, of our inheritance that we will have in Christ Jesus. Yeah. Uh, I do not believe that the... That the Holy Spirit ever that that God ever created new life in a person that He didn't also see to it that they were sustained. Yeah. He didn't. He has never begun a work in someone that He did not see to to completion. And so, you know, right. And sorry. the way I
0: see those passages is: be careful. You need to learn what it hear, what it sounds like, what it feels like when He's sustaining you. Right. You need to read that right. He'll right. call you to Himself. Uh, It is not being called to yourself if you're going, I can rest in sloth, I can rest in laziness, I can rest in greed. I can, you know, that's not, that is, uh, that is in fact one of the things we are cautioned about. Jesus says there's four kinds of soil. Sometimes there's life that begins to spring up. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out that life. Mm -hmm. We've seen it. We know it happens. Watch out for it.
1: That's exactly right. There is the reality of whitewashed tombs. People who Mm -hmm. are clean and look good on the outside, and as Hebrews 6 says, have tasted of the heavenly things, have have been enlightened in these ways, and yet what we know is that on the inside there's nothing but death. There is no new life in them, at least not yet. Uh, and so the, those warning passages ought to be warnings against that, against mm-hmm. uh, presumption. I think we might say presuming upon the grace of God, presuming uh, life where there is none. And so, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I, I think uh, what, like I said, what he says after that certainly I find to be true that we do this thing, we run the Christian race, we live our Christian lives not by our own steam, but by our the sustaining of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. by the empowering of the Holy Spirit so that ultimately we will never get to heaven and be able to take credit for our being sustained because of the right. effort we put in. Right. But at the end of all things, we will say all glory be to mm-hmm. Christ. He deserves all the glory. We we get none.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree. Uh, there's just a couple other things here that I think that uh, are important to, to mention, uh, he says, people today have become so afraid when someone tells them to take anything on the authority of someone else. 99% of the things we believe is based on the authority others have in our lives, based on the fact that we trust them. Uh, we, we, we got here because he said, look, uh, we take these means of life, the, the, these paths to life on Jesus' authority. He says, these are the ways. Well, don't get scared off. And there are a lot of discussions still today about, well, I can't take that just because you say so. And it's like, well, yeah, check it out. But don't act like your life is just an endless string of absolutely verified sources other than this one (laughs) religious source. Yeah, Yeah. and what do we mean by that? Okay, do you believe there's a Paris, France? Well, yeah. You've been there? No. Why do you believe that? Multiple authorities. Okay, okay. Just a, as a, to come all the way down to Earth here, I was reading uh, this morning in Second Corinthians how Paul talks about all the things that he endured, and how he's still following Christ. Beatings, you know. He, he did, I don't think he put a number on the beatings. He says yeah. beatings. endless beatings. <laughs> Why? Why would somebody keep on taking beatings, in addition to all the other? Hardships that he mentions. If you want to dismiss that and say, well, that's just one guy. Um, that one guy is, first of all, a follower of Jesus, who is another guy. But then our record of this entire time is Christians in a Roman Empire that killed them and killed them and killed them and said, why in the world would you not denounce this Jesus over and over and over. They wouldn't. Yes, there, there were some who did. But over and over, wh- why in the world? To what benefit is it? But that's, that's just one example of what we see from this time period. This is a historical fact. A man Jesus leads a movement of people. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this this way in a different uh, book. He says, I only believe witnesses who are willing to die for their testimony. Uh, those are those are powerful witnesses.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Agreed.
1: Yeah, he he speaks about authority, and it is a funny thing we do accept all things on authority, but yet people are so quick to reject uh, this authority. <laughs> and I, I've heard studies. I think um, I think Answers in Genesis has done uh, some examples of this, of like um, all of the sort of evidence that could be compiled of the trustworthiness of various like history books from similar time periods of of uh, the bible or at least certain parts of the bible right uh and they are you know widely accepted as truthful authoritative like trustworthy and then all of the evidence which is so overwhelming for the historicity of the truthfulness of the bible is, is like i mean it dwarfs these other textbooks and history books that are while widely accepted as, as trustworthy, are, it dwarfs them, you know, as far as the evidence for it and kind of the, the establishing of it. And yet it is often rejected as, you know, nonsense and the things that it says, untrustworthy and things like that. And But it is a thing that we do have to recognize. That we accept most of what we know on authority. Right. Um, none of us has, has any reason to believe that the uh, sun is round Uh, and that we are currently spinning around it at an incredible rate, uh, except on authority, right? right? And I'm not telling you don't believe those things, don't trust those authorities. I'm saying, no, that's reasonable to believe these authorities who have studied this, who know much more about it than we do, who have uh, done these things. I'm saying this is good evidence not to reject uh, something purely on the basis of authority, Mm -hmm. right? But rather recognize we always trust on the basis of authority, almost always question is what authorities
0: right all right and this has been empires of the future
1: and we'll see you in the future